Thanks, Chris. Good morning, everybody. I'm Kieran. It's my my pleasure to welcome you here to City Church this morning, especially if you're if you're visiting. I know some of you obviously are, so it's good to have you here. And if I haven't yet had the chance to to speak to you, um, I look forward to chatting to you afterwards. So you're very welcome. You notice on the slides that they've got this reminders thing on that corresponds to the series we're in at the moment from Second Peter. And Second Peter as a book is all about reminding us about the truths of the gospel. And we're into our, our second week of 2 Peter. So this morning we'll look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 12 down to the end of the chapter. So you'll find that on page 1224. Does everybody have a Bible or access to Bible? There are some spares up near front. Everybody got one? Okay, great. So page one, two, two, four. And we read from verse 12 down to the end. Let me pray as, as we come to God's word together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, thank you that by your spirit you remind us of the truths that you have given us concerning yourself and concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you we can come together and consider that today and we pray, Father, for for the help of your spirit as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen. So from verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort, so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so reads God's word. What I want us to think about this morning is how the gospel is, is trustworthy. And the first thing from verses 12 to 15 is to remember the truth about Jesus. And as I was thinking through this passage this week, I saw again uh, in the news that in Poland, they think they might be getting closer to finding a Nazi train that went this, that disappeared in World War II. And apparently it's loaded with, with gold bars and, and with weapons and 
maybe with some stolen art as well from the Nazi period. And the reason they think they're closing in on, on where it is is because one of the German soldiers died and on his deathbed he revealed this secret about its whereabouts. And often whenever somebody approaches death and they're in possession of certain truths or certain secrets, they reveal them at that time. And so it's often a time of revelation for things that have not yet been told. And the author of this letter, the Apostle Peter, is at that point in his own life. He is approaching the, the very end. He's about to die. What will he reveal about Jesus right at the last? See, he explains there that he is about to put off uh, my body, as he puts it in verse 14, since I know that a putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And yet he says in verse 13, I think it is, or verse 12 rather, I always intend to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. There's a lot of mystery associated with what might the Gospels have seen and what might they have witnessed and what might they say right at the point of death. And yet, Peter here, right at the last, what will he reveal? He says to them, I want to remind you about what you already know. I want to remind you about the truth about Jesus. I want to remind you about the things that you have already been taught about Jesus. And he wants to stir them up. See how he puts it in verse 13? I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. But he doesn't stir them up with new revelation. He doesn't stir them up with secrets concerning some special stash of secrets somewhere that has been lost. He doesn't reveal anything new actually to them. But what he wants to remind them of is stirring. And it is something which they already know. Not, not secrets for the few, but to stir them up with the knowledge that is there for everyone who would come to know and follow Jesus as he has taught them and as they have been taught. And he's making every effort towards that end. He says that he is working hard in verse 15. I'll make every effort so that after my departure, after I die, you may be able at any time to recall these things. He wants to keep them focused on Jesus to do so on their own two feet so that they will be able to recall the truths about Jesus once he has gone. Not just to be able to recite them or to, to know them off by heart, but to be stirred by them, to be living them, to be remembering them in a proactive and transforming kind of way. That's the legacy that Peter wanted. And you can usually spot uh, true and worthwhile people because the legacy that they wish to leave is not about them and how great they are and all the great things they did, but rather about the person they are pointing to. And in this case, Peter, Peter is pointing to and drawing them back to the truth about Jesus. So that's what he wants them to remember first and foremost, the truth about Jesus. And then he wants them to remember that 
His return is no myth. So from verse 16 down to uh, verse 19, that Jesus' return is no myth. Verse 18, rather. I came across a dialogue on, on Facebook one time with a friend of mine, and he had written this little dialogue between person A and person B. And so person A said, Superman really exists. Person B says, he's a fictional character. Person A, no, he does. I have comic books all about him. He's a real dude. He came here from the planet Krypton to make the world a better place. Person B, you're an idiot. Then he went on to say, now replace the word comic book with Bible and the word Krypton with heaven, and while you're at it, replace the word Superman with Jesus. I don't normally dip into these kinds of things, but on this occasion, I wrote one response. I said, whatever your opinion of Jesus, he was a historical figure, and the comparison with Superman is simply not like for like. I don't know of any historical record of people seeing Superman. I don't know of any historical record of people experiencing a man named Clark Kent that made some kind of effect on society and seemed to have some kind of power. But there is this common perception, this assumption, that all faith is blind faith, that it's not anchored in any kind of fact. And that if it might be your spiritual preference, and in that case, that's very good. I'm happy for you and the things that you have come to learn and, and believe. But it's not factual. Or the accusations can be a lot more, more sinister. They can say, well, really, it's all irrational. It's just slightly invented nonsense. It's invented by, by church leaders to control the, the ignorant, devout. And it's not credible to modern people and it must be seen as a myth, and it must be considered as a myth. And any concept that Jesus might actually return is just beyond ridiculous and myth. So that's the way in which questions like this are, are interacted with. I mean, I'm sure you experience this with those around you who don't share your convictions about matters of faith. And so Peter says in verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now the return of Jesus is something that's been questioned here and he addresses it later in the book as well. And he is making the point here in verse 16 that the gospel, the, what he is saying happened with the person of Jesus and what is yet to happen with Jesus' return is not to be thought of in a category of myth. It's not fantasy. And the Bible presents itself as a historical truth. Unlike any of the Greek mythology of its day or any myth that you would read, the gospel is consistently presented with an unapologetic and persistent reference to people, time, space, events, eyewitnesses. 
It's not a cleverly invented story. It's not a mere philosophy or religious idea. It presents the supernatural with the rational and natural in space-time history, days, dates, places. And that is what Peter here is reiterating. It's not a cleverly devised myth. We were eyewitnesses of this. The supernatural in the Bible is presented with the rational on our turf, on our clock, and in our calendar. That is how it is presented. Now, you may not believe it, but it is presented in those terms as factual in space-time history. That's what you've got to deal with in terms of coming to handle and think about the Bible. It's not asking you to believe something that's just might be your cup of tea and not someone else's. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ recounts the activity of God himself in space-time history. See, he says, we were eyewitnesses. Now, there's nothing like the prospect of death, though I haven't been there, to concentrate the mind. So if you know that you have hours or days or months to live, you, know, you, don't, you don't fret about your houseplants or, or about your unmade bed. You focus on ultimate things, things that are of significance. And Peter is about to die. What has he got to lose? He could admit at this point, you know, none of this actually happened. We just made it all up for the crack. And I'm going to die for it because, you know, it's, 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 been a good, it's been a good run. No, he's adamant that the gospel is historical and that those past events, those certain events that happened, they in their certainty tell you that the things that Jesus has said about the future are just as certain. And when he talks about these being an eyewitness of his majesty here in verse 16 and then on in, in verse 17 and 18, he's talking about the event we read, Grant read from Matthew, the transfiguration as it's known. He says, for when we received honor and glory, he, Jesus, from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased we ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And that event of the transfiguration when Jesus was transformed into this brilliant white, this incredible encounter that the apostles had that we read about in the, in the Gospels. His face shone like the sun and his his clothes became white as light and Moses and Elijah were there conversing with Jesus and the, the apostles, the disciples, they, they were totally dumbfounded. They didn't know what to do. They weren't expecting this. They couldn't have thought anything like this up would ever occur. And it was so symbolically rich. The mountaintop experiences are times in the Bible of revelation and it was prophetically significant too because the language used by the Father on that occasion wasn't random or, or disconnected. It was lifted from what had already been said right through the Old Testament that Jesus was being shown to be the king who would fulfill all the purposes and promises of God, that he would deliver rescue, he would deliver judgment, he would show them how all the Bible fit together, fitted together. And Peter is saying, we were witnesses to that, we saw it, we heard it. And it was a magnificent snapshot of the eternity to come 
where you had the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament disciples, Jesus the King, and the applause and approval and glory of the Father all together. And just as Peter had witnessed this, the apostles taught that Jesus would return in his glory to finalize his rescue and judgment. And Peter cites this experience of the transfiguration to refute any notion that the future return of Jesus was the stuff of myth or that anything that he was teaching them and that they had come to believe was the stuff of myth. Again, it was not a cleverly devised myth when he made known to them the power and coming of Jesus Christ. They experienced these realities as recorded for us um, in the gospel. And it was a magnificent glimpse for them of Jesus' true identity, of him as the true king, a peak in that transfiguration, that mountaintop experience of the glory that was to come not only for the few, but ultimately for the entire world then. Peter's saying, look, just as this was in my experience, and I, I didn't make it up, we can be sure that what Jesus has promised he will do in the future is certain. Jesus' return is no myth. And so he carries on this emphasis of seeing, hearing, and experiencing in all of this passage. He wants them to understand he's talking about actual events that your senses could experience. Not some mystical secret, not an experience that he himself had on his own that nobody else could quantify, but something that happened and was tangible. He doesn't appeal to some secret feeling in his heart or some secret experience that can't be argued against. He experienced something that he saw, heard, witnessed and there were others with him also in a real place with the real and historical Jesus. And this is designed to encourage your faith, to encourage you that these things are not just made up. That Jesus presented at a popular level is really very pathetic, it's disheartening and it's embarrassing how it's put forward. And it's hard to keep solid faith when all around you think that you're deluded, that you're believing things that are just made up. And your memory can fade quickly when the pressure is on. But Peter's saying, look, remember, we were eyewitnesses of his glory. Christianity is not the stuff of myth. You need to be encouraged in the reality that it presents. And be challenged if it is you're not yet a Christian or you're skeptical. Be challenged to look into the claims of Christianity and give it your careful thought rather than just using a defeater argument of it's only myth look into it. He goes on to talk about how the Bible is trustworthy in verses 19 down to, to 21. There is a, an unprecedented dismissal of the Bible at the moment. You maybe have that opinion yourself today that it's not worth the paper it's written on. If not, you'll know people who do think that. It's seen as being just chauvinistic, archaic, intolerant, just full of errors, full of fairy stories. And basically it's a man-made book put together at the whim of, of the powerful and the influential at the time. And we're above that now. We can see through that and 
fine, read it if you like a bit of literature, but you know, don't tell me how I ought to live my life from it and don't be so foolish as to live your life according to it. Certainly don't try to run society according to it. You hear these, these arguments put forward and there's not seen to be any connection between the Bible as a whole, between the Old Testament and New Testament, but actually the scriptures are one big story, 66 books that tell the story of Jesus the King and his kingdom the journey from creation to new creation, and it's not the stuff of myth. And Peter reminds them of this bigger picture. He's saying that the transfiguration was not random. Nothing in the life and death of Jesus was random. And the things Peter witnessed show just how trustworthy the Bible is. That's why he follows on from this experience of the transfiguration, he says in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a light, a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Everything that had happened in the Bible up to this point was foreshadowing all the things that Peter himself had witnessed and looked forward to being fulfilled. The promise of one who would bring the ultimate rescue and deliverance. A suffering servant, a mighty king, Jesus fulfilled everything that the scriptures had been pointing to in his life, in his cross, in his resurrection. He fulfilled it all and provided all we need for life with God and forgiveness. The things Peter witnesses make, as he puts it, the word of the prophets more certain. In other words, they show them to be true. They demonstrate their trustworthiness. They demonstrate how it all fits together. And so he encourages them to give it their attention. Verse 19, to give it careful attention, careful thought. We would do well to pay attention to it. So I encourage you to read it, to discuss it, to, to think deeply about what it is you're reading, to think deeply as you interact with others, and to pay attention to the scriptures, and to follow, follow the path like a light that it is leading through a dark place, and to give it your attention until Jesus returns. That day is referred to in beautiful terms in, in here. Pay attention in verse 19 as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, which is a poetic way of describing, picking up again on language found already in the Bible about what will happen when Jesus returns and dissolves all doubt and uncertainty which cloud our hearts. But he returns to this accusation of all this being man-made myth and he shows the Bible is trustworthy because of its design origin, of its divine origin. See in verse 20 he says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You didn't find people like Isaiah in the Old Testament or Jeremiah wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I will write me some Bible. I think I will seek to fool the world and pretend that what I am writing is from the Lord. I think I'll write a Bible book today. What you find when you read the scriptures is that this revelation was given to them it's expressed through their humanity, but they experienced intense persecution. 
for speaking God's word. It certainly didn't always suit them. It was no walk in the park for them to have done that. And it was divine in origin. It's not human in origin, Peter says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. And um, back a bit in verse 20, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It did not originate with the authors. It originated with the Lord. Now today the accusation is exactly that, that the Bible is, is a man-made document, but it does not present itself as that. It presents itself unapologetically as being divine in origin. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It didn't come from their own interpretation. It was not produced by their own will. When you read the Bible, and when you read it right through, you find that it has an unmistakable humanity about it at the same time. It's full of people. It's full of their lives, their mess. And the gospel accounts have a very human expression to them. Each gospel has its own flavor and its own style, its own quirks. And Peter here is explaining the incredible mystery of the way in which God has designed his word. Though it is divine in origin, it is human in expression. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The writers of the Bible were not divine dictaphones. They were not robots. They were not presented as some kind of scripture zombies. This is an unapologetically human and divine book. Men spoke from God. The Bible contends for itself that human beings in possession of their, of their faculties, of their mind, wrote the words of Scripture and that God caused the words he wanted to be written to be written. The Bible does not contend that it fell out of heaven one day like some divine PDF it's not how it is presented. God used his human creation to pen his divine word. Now, I don't know if I would have done it like that if I were God. I'd probably be more inclined towards a divine PDF personally, wouldn't you? It seems quite messy, doesn't it? There's something kind of messy about that. And I guess there is. God is a God who has a habit of getting involved with the mess of humanity, is he not? He himself became human and messy in the person of Jesus. Look at his life. Look at his cross. And through his purposes, right from the start, God has always been involving humanity to bring his purposes about. So it is only appropriate and in keeping with God's character that the Bible is human and divine. We're, but he says that they were born up by the Holy Spirit, carried along. Prophecy, the Bible didn't have its origin in man, it had its origin in God, in his Holy Spirit, and therein is its trustworthiness and its reliability. I personally believe that the Bible is the word of God, that it is divine in origin, that it was inspired by God's Holy Spirit, and that it can utterly transform your life. 
It did mine. And I've seen that among some of you here, even in recent weeks, the way in which the scriptures transforms our whole experience. I have a friend here today who helped me understand the Bible when I first started out. And the reading of the scriptures gives you that conviction by the Holy Spirit as to its truth. Not because the Spirit is tricking you, but because it is enabling you to see that it is true, a true truth, not a myth. I have no interest in myths to live my life by or to anticipate a future in. I have no interest in being fooled and believing nonsense. I have no interest in peddling stuff that is frivolous, feel-good spirituality just because it's an easier way to get on with life. That has zero appeal to me and I think it has very little appeal to people like you and it has no appeal to those who we interact with every week. The scriptures are not asking you to believe like that. They're asking you to believe in something that is true and compelling you to understand the nature in, by which the scriptures work, like a lamp shining in a dark place. And we would do well to pay attention to it. The scriptures are compelling because they illuminate our humanity because they were penned by hands like ours, with hearts that beat like ours. Hearts were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And God, in his profound wisdom and immeasurable kindness, allow his words to be penned with the aroma of man. A God like that can do anything. A God like that could become a man and become filthy in our humanity and still maintain and promote his glory and rescue humanity through that imperfection that is ours. He perfected it and he got into our mess and won our rescue and our freedom and guaranteed a future glory. And Peter is saying, I've seen it. I have witnessed these things. It is not myth. The scriptures are not myth, and Jesus' return is not myth. So if you are here this morning and you are a skeptic, I encourage you to continue to be skeptical in a sense that keep using your brain. That's good. Exploring faith is not about switching off your brain. Don't do that. Use your brain. As a Christian, I believe God gave you that brain. But examine the scriptures deeply and carefully and search them. Put them into your top, top gear and search the scriptures and ask, is this true? If you're here this morning and you are a believer, do exactly the same thing. Because Peter wants you to pay close attention. He has made all the effort he could do to help you remember, to dig deep, and to ask the Holy Spirit to stir you up by way of reminder. be interesting to see now if they find this Nazi train, whether the gold turns up, whether there is stolen art there, what secrets it will reveal. I would be busting keen to be there myself and to see it all. I hope they find it. 
Part of the beauty and wonder of the script of the, of the gospel is that it's saying all the secrets have been revealed in the person of Jesus. But yet, you will never stop discovering and growing and exploring and being thrilled by the person of Jesus. Because he's infinite. They'll empty that train and that'll be it. Not so with the person of Jesus or the gospel. Infinitely interesting, infinitely animating, infinitely glorious, and made known. No more secrets. Where else can you find a truth like that except in the one true God that has revealed himself to us? So Peter wants us to know the truth about Jesus, that his return is no myth and to remember that the Bible is trustworthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you in your kindness you've seen to remind us of what we already know. We pray that if we are new to these things that you would enable us to know them for the first time. If we already know them, would you stir us up by way of reminder and encourage our hearts that we're not dealing with myth, with myth but with power and glory and fact and things that are truly true. Would you mesmerize us with these things? In the name of Jesus, amen.